Thank you, Andy and Julie and kids for, I guess you're not kids, but for leading us in worship today. I know it's kind of stepping out of your comfort zone a little bit on a Sunday morning to do it, Andy, but I appreciate it. We, we grew up in a home where music was just kind of integral to who we were. We did a lot of music. Um, my dad was one of those guys, he could just kind of pick up anything and start plunking on it, and next thing you know, he'd have it singing a song, and my dad was just kind of that way, and, and uh, so Simon and Andy, my twin, not my twin, twin brothers, my dad taught them to play the guitar and the banjo. I've got a brother, John, that is extremely musical. My sister's musical, and I am not. I love to sing, but man, I'll tell you what, I tried hard to learn to play the guitar. And I would practice and practice and practice. Just, I gave up. I am looking forward to glory when I can pick up a stringed instrument and play it and uh, sing it. I, I love music, and, uh, but I'm not very good at it. We're going to continue in John chapter 3. I hope you join me there. I'll tell you what. The verse that we start with today that leads us in this paragraph, verse 16 of chapter 3, Martin Luther said of it, it is like, it flows like milk and honey to the sin-sick soul. Flows like milk and honey to the sin-sick soul. It is probably the most well-known sentence in the English language. I bet that's even true today in a secular country like we live. For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, that whoever would believe on Him would not perish, but have eternal life. That is the gospel in a sentence. I could read it and close, and you would get the message. God so loved the world. The Apostle Paul kind of says it this way, 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is a true saying. It is worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. This is a worthy saying. Standing under the weight of a text like this, boy, it's hard. You know, we we read this, we know it. Building a message around it is tough. Standing under the weight of this. Sometimes when we think of this, we hear it so often. We, we read it in the scripture that God is love. He loves us. He sent his son. He died for us. And it just kind of becomes the air we breathe as Christians. And I don't want to say we take it for granted, but we take it for granted. We get used to it. We lose the wonder 
And I guess as we stand before the text today, my prayer would be that the Holy Spirit just ignites in our hearts as his children a wonder again. Remember how the church at Ephesus, Jesus said of it in the book of Revelation, you've left the love you had at first. The Holy Spirit would just ignite that in us. That we would stand under this text in that kind of way. Let's pick up in verse 16. We're going to read down through verse 21. In verse 22, we're going to see a transition in the text where we go back to John the Baptist and Jesus and the Jordan River. This is going to conclude this segment of the dialogue, the conversation that is going on between Nicodemus and Jesus. We've already studied the first 15 verses of the chapter, and we're not going to rehash them today. That's not why you came here, so let's move on. God so loved the world. Notice the word, though, that I left off is the word for. For God so. That's an adverb. He so loved the world. For and so tie us back in the text to the previous verse. In the previous verse, we see Jesus saying to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever would look to him and believe would be saved. And so Jesus, like this snake in numbers, is lifted up as our sin bearer. He is the Lamb of God. We sang of him this morning. He is lifted up. And it is in that way that he loves us. For and so tie us back to verse 15. God's love for us is not only revealed in him sending his son, his only son, but more importantly it is revealed in him sending his one and only son to die for us. So it tells us in the text, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. We're going to see in these verses we are condemned already. As it tells us in the book of Romans, when the Apostle Paul explains in that great doctrinal section in chapter 5, we have received a sinful nature because of the one man's sin. And because of that one man's sin in the garden, death and sin have spread to all, and we lie in a state of a sin-sick soul, condemned. And so Jesus did not come to condemn the world. We are already condemned. But in order that the world might be saved. Now, obviously, we throw that word saved around all the time in Christian ease. When we talk, we say, are you saved? When were you saved? The word just simply means to be delivered, to be rescued. And, and, and obviously, we're going to have to link that up with what he just said in the previous verse. That the person who is saved is someone who has what? Eternal 
life. So is eternal life. So someone is saved, they are delivered, they are rescued, and they are given a gift. Eternal life. And that is through him. And so he says in verse 18, it is whoever that believes in him, he is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. And this is why he's condemned. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. This is the indictment. It's very clear, and it's not issued by a Soros funded DA. It's very legitimate. God doesn't have to dream it up. God doesn't have to hunt into the obscurity of your tax records. This is the indictment. What is it? This is the indictment that sits over my head from the moment I am born. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. Notice that. Hates the light. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says it this way, the fleshly mind is the enemy of God. The mind of flesh, the mind of sin, the mind that is in Adam is not ambivalent, is not neutral, is not even objective. The natural man hate God, hates God, hates the light, does not want to come to the light because he doesn't want his works exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out. God. Owie. It starts out pretty sublime, and it goes south from there. To really fathom the greatness of the gift, we must first come to terms with the gravity of our situation. Can I just say that again to you? To fathom the greatness of this gift, we must first come to terms with the gravity, the precarious situation in which we find ourselves. And so to do that, let's first look to the Lord. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take these words that you breathed out, that John recorded, 
that we have read before. And that, Lord, you would write them upon our hearts. That we, your children, would rejoice in what you have done. That, Lord, maybe someone who does not know you, maybe it's a young person, a child in our midst who's grown up in a Christian home. And, Holy Spirit, you're just turning on the light in that heart. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would have free reign, both in this room and in the computer and on the radio, and that you would take your word and you would make dry bones live. In Jesus' name, amen. I called this sermon a tale of two loves. Remember the book Charles Dickens wrote? Tale of Two Cities. Have you ever read it? Great book. Tale of Two Loves. God loved the world. But men love darkness. Think of the contrast. Think of that contrast in those verses as we study it this morning, that he starts out with this great sublime statement. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. That is a great verse. Oh, who wouldn't take up that deal? Who wants to perish? Who doesn't want eternal life? Oh, ask any kid out there at a VBS. Do you want to go to hell when you die? You don't get many takers on that. Oh, I do. I can only think of a few people who actually said to me that they wanted to go to hell. One of them was one person who was so mad at me in an email. They said to me in an email, I would much rather go to hell than be with you in heaven. It was over our position on homosexual marriage. Said, you bunch of stuck-up Christian snobs, they're going to put your morality on us? Ooh. You know what my prayer has been for that person ever since? No, no. They don't know what they're saying, Lord. I'm not ticked at them for that. My heart is broken for them. Why would you say that? You know why? Because men love darkness. God is light. God is love. But men love darkness. A tale of two loves. How do you fix that? How do you fix a heart that loves the wrong thing? The only way is what Jesus started with. Unless a person gets a new heart. They can't. You know what most of us do? I remember reading these verses. I remember studying them. I remember memorizing them as a kid in a Wana club. I do remember. Actually, that was the first time I memorized those verses. Old King James Version, Awana Club. Got them down. And I remember coming to terms with this. Oh, yeah. I really 
don't want to have my deeds exposed. Oh, I don't mind being religious. I don't mind going to church. But I know I'm a sinner. I know I've done some things I don't want mom and dad to know. How do I fix that? Well, I remember as a kid, well, I just got to start loving the truth. I just got to start doing better. And what do we do? We just try to clean ourselves up. We're just going to be more moral. That's how we're going to fix it. It don't work, my friend. It does not work. You cannot fix your love life by just trying to be moral. The only way you can fix this love life issue with God is for God to give you a new heart. Unless a person is born again, they will always choose darkness over light. But what does that mean? Because I see a lot of good people out there who are not born again. So what does that mean? We've got to think about that. Now, the first thing that we've got to think about as we look at this chapter is, just to answer this real quickly, is this conversation or is it commentary? <coughs> I find it very interesting. There is no conclusion to the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. We know it ends in verse 22 because he starts a new thought. But when does the conversation end? There's actually a lot of disagreement about that. Some people believe that the conversation is ending in verse 15. And verse 16 to 21, that paragraph, is actually a commentary that the Apostle John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to explain the rest of the conversation and what is going on in the conversation. So that's possible. But we really don't know because we don't know when the conversation ends. You know what else is interesting? We don't even know how the conversation ends. Right? It starts out with Jesus and Nicodemus talking, and Nicodemus had some questions, and Jesus had some truth he was delivering, and then all of a sudden Nicodemus just kind of slips out the back door, doesn't he? We don't even know what he does with it. Now, you can go later in the Gospels and you can find out that Joseph of Arimathea, which, by the way, I don't know if you know this, church tradition says that Joseph of Arimathea was Jesus' uncle. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. We don't know that. Church, he was also a wealthy man. He was most likely, church tradition says he was a traitor. He was a ship. He owned ships. I saw three ships come sailing in is actually a song written about Joseph of Arimathea and his trading. Okay, so he was a trader, most people believed, and he was very wealthy. He has a tomb in Jerusalem. And so church tradition says he was the uncle of Jesus. We don't know that. Okay, I'm not going to say that's inspired. But Joseph of Arimathea and who go to the high priest wanting the body of Jesus? Nicodemus. Tells us he's a disciple, but he is one secretly. So we can glean from that that somewhere along the way, Nicodemus has responded to the gospel, and he is a believer in who Jesus is. But we don't get it in this passage. Now why? I mean, we kind of get the end of it in chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman, right? 
Jesus confronts the Samaritan woman. He tells her what she needs. She goes into the city. She says, come meet a man who told me everything I ever did, who exposed my darkness to the light. Did she run from it? No, she got a new heart. And she went to it. Nicodemus just slips out the back door. Why did God do that? You know why? Because if we knew what Nicodemus did with it, we would always think this was just for Nicodemus. You know what God did with it? He said, for whoever. This ain't just for Nicodemus, as is none of the Bible, but I think this is a very specific linguistic choice by the Holy Spirit. So when we come to this text, we go from Nicodemus to Tim Moyer. And it's Tim Moyer and Jesus sitting over a cup of coffee. And Jesus is saying to me, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom. And Tim, by the way, so you know, you love darkness, not light. Because you don't want other people to know what I know about you. And what are you going to do with that? It's me and Jesus. And my friend, it's you and Jesus. It is a conversation. Now, in this text, we see a lot of contrast. I want to do this real quick. There's perishing. There's eternal life. There's God's love. There's man's love. God's love is what? He loved us so much he sends his only son. But what is man's love? Oh, we just love God. No, what do we love? Darkness. But we love him. What does this tell us in 1 John chapter 4? We love him because he first loved us. He first loved us. So man's love doesn't get directed properly until we come to terms with God's love for us. We don't initiate it. God does. Darkness and life and light. Boy, I screwed up there. It's not darkness and life. It's darkness and light. There's condemnation and being saved. There's love and there is hate. Let's think about John 3.16. John 3.16 is going to serve as kind of the umbrella for this entire paragraph. This one sentence becomes the topic sentence for what we see unveiled in the entire rest of this paragraph, and we see three things in it. First of all, we see a fact. This is a declarative statement. It's not a command. God's not asking anything of us at the start of this. It is a fact. God loved the world. It's a declarative statement. The second thing we see in the verse is something that he does. He acts. Because he loves the world, he gives his son, his one and only son. He is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord my provider. He provides his one and only son as a sin bearer for my sin. And then he makes a pact with us. And here's the pact. Clean yourself up. Right? Is that what it is? Get baptized. Turn over a new leaf. Go to church every week. 
What's the agreement God makes? Whoever believes. Whoever believes will not perish, but will have eternal life. That's the verse in a nutshell. Now, when you think about it, this declaration is a statement of fact. God loves the world. God made the world, and God also loves the world. What does it mean that God loves the world? There are so many things that we could say about that. What does it mean he loves the world? He loves the Greek word is cosmos. And it speaks of his entire created order. I really bogged down on this in my study this week. And I can't bog down on it today. But we will come back to this as we study through John's gospel. This whole thing about the world. What part of the world is it that God loves? I... John 17 is very instructive. The word world, cosmos, appears more in that chapter. Jesus uses it in a prayer to his Father more times in that chapter than any other place in the New Testament. Very instructive. Um, It tells us a lot. We are in the world. We are not of the world. I saved them out of the world. I'm going back to my Father and I'm leaving the world, but they're going to stay in the world. Keep them in your name, Father. All these things that you see about the world. But what is very interesting is in 1 John chapter 2. I hit the wall on this. Because in John 3, he tells us that God does what? What does he say? God, you awake? Loves the world. But in 1 John chapter 2, you know what he says? Do not love the world. And that's a command to us. Do not love the world. Neither the things that are in the world. Because if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. (coughs) For everything that is in the world, he says. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not from the Father. It's from the evil one. And the world is perishing. And all of its lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. So how come God loved the world, but we can't? What does that mean? Right? God loved the world. We can't. Don't love it. How does that fit? There's a lot we could say about this, but let's just simply get it down into one little piece of the puzzle and say it like this. God, in all the glory of his perfection, loves the people who inhabit this planet who have made a mess of it and wants to save us out of it. And when we are saved out of it, we are now his. And we are to pass judgment on what we once were while still loving those who were trapped in it. But we do so from a different vantage point. 
we're no longer a part of it. We're pilgrims. We're strangers on this earth. To fathom the greatness of this gift, I said this at the beginning, we must first come to terms with the gravity of our situation. Outside of Christ, first of all, our condition. My condition is not just that I do things that are wrong. Although I do do things that are wrong. Even now as a believer, right? Amen? Anybody screw up this week? Anybody had to ask somebody to forgive them? If you didn't, it's probably not that you didn't need to. My condition is not just that I make mistakes or I sin willfully or anything. Here's my problem. At its core is that my heart is out of sorts and I have a misdirected love. What is the core, the essence of God's commandments? Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might. And what? The second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these hang all the law and the prophets. What do I do? I love myself. Right? Amen? Anybody else have that condition going on in your life? Self-love. We have a misdirected love. That is the core of my problem. That's why I do bad things. Misdirected love. The second thing is this, my destiny. He says it in verse 16. Apart from Christ, I will suffer. Notice the word suffer. We don't like to talk about hell anymore. It's mentioned 12 times in the New Testament, and Jesus used the word 11 of those times. 12 times in the New Testament, and Jesus used the word 11 of them. Here's my destiny apart from Christ. I will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That is the gravity of my condition and my destiny. And I will never fathom the greatness of this gift until I get those two things right. Think about our misdirected love. First of all, men love darkness. That doesn't mean men aren't moral. Jesus is talking to who? Nicodemus. He's a pretty good man. He's a Pharisee. He's a righteous man externally. It does not mean men are not moral. It doesn't mean that people are as bad as they possibly could be. In fact, I would suggest to you that it's kind of innate to our character unless you're really screwed up. Most people try to be good. That's the only reason we can operate as a society. You can't have enough policemen to keep it right. Just go ask Portland, although they defunded them all anyway. Right? You, you can't have enough policemen. You can't have enough courts. If people want to be bad and want to do wrong things, and you can see this as a society breaks down, when everybody does what's right in their own eyes, 
and nobody gives a rip and nobody cares and nobody submits to law, you're really screwed. The only reason a civilization can work is because most people are moral. So he's not saying here that people are just inherently immoral in every way, as bad as they possibly can be. No, that's not what he means. He doesn't mean men aren't religious. Most people go to church. Maybe not church, but if you take the planet, there's a lot of people in mosques. There's a lot of people in Buddhist temples. There's a lot of people bowing down at shrines to Shinto and animistic religions in the bush country. People are irreducibly religious. Irreducibly religious. Jesus isn't saying people aren't religious. What he's saying is this. Men are at enmity with God. We don't want to come to the light. We'll go to church. But I don't want to meet God. He knows me. He's got my mail. He has my email address. He knows me. And I don't want to be exposed, not just before other people, but before him. So the issue is, in this misdirected love, we have this thing called self-love. In Ephesians chapter 5, it talks about that. No man ever hated himself. He loves himself. He nurtures himself. You know, people sometimes say people commit suicide because they don't love themselves. No. You know why people commit suicide? Because they love themselves. You say, that sounds stupid. No, it's true. People commit suicide because they love themselves. What do they say? I think that I will be better off and all this pain and misery I am experiencing will go away if I kill myself. So in some very distorted way, their self-love overcomes their fear of death and they love themselves to death. Literally. Self-love. Um, Jesus talks about it and the Gospels talk about it many times. There's the love of the world. Demas forsook me because he loved this present world. There's the love of money. There's a love of prestige and power. These are all things that are misdirected loves that we experience as people. How do we get that set right in our life? How do we get this thing straight? Ah, oh, we got to go right back to where we started, as I already said. The only way to fix this condition, the only way to change this destiny, is to be born again. And when I meet Jesus, and it's just not words on a page anymore, but I meet Jesus. And he says to me, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And I say back to him, but Lord, you, you know me, and uh, how can this be? And he says to me, can these dry bones live? And he speaks to me his word. Unless the Son of Man is lifted up, he must first be lifted up. 
He is my sin bearer. He took my sin upon himself. God so loved the world in this way. He not only came here, he died for me. He knew everything that I would do. Everything. Now, all I know about myself is my present state and my past. Right? None of us are soothsayers. I know what's true of me today, and I know what happened in my past. And I don't know what is to come. But get this one. When Jesus hung on that cross, everything that I would do was still in the future. He knew it all. And he died for me. And he bore it that I would not suffer eternal punishment from his presence forever. But that I would receive eternal life. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he loved me. I need my love fixed. What happens when I meet the Lord and I am born again, it's not that I become perfect. It's that I receive a new heart and now I love the light. And I love the truth. And the truth will set us free. Father, I thank you for this time that we could spend in your word this morning and think of this tremendous passage. Thank you, Lord, that you loved me. And you loved me in such a way that you sent your son to die for me. You could give me a new heart as I believe in you. Rest in what you have done. Lord, help us, your children, to understand this verse in a way that if we meet somebody on the street and we're talking with them, we can just take them to this simple sentence and give them, as Martin Luther said, this milk and honey. I pray, Lord, that if someone doesn't know you, Holy Spirit, that you would touch them in such a way that they would believe in you, in what Jesus has done. You know, we're going to move on. Just keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. We're going to move on from John chapter 3, this section with Nicodemus, and we're going to move into some other parts of the book. But as we close today, I just want to remind you, although we don't often, I don't have you put up your hand if you want to make a decision or, and, and those kind of things, I still want you to make a decision because you must make a decision for Christ. You are condemned already if you do not know him. That's what the Bible says. To be saved, you must trust him. You must trust what he has done. And that flies in the face of everything that's going on in your heart because we have that white-knuckle grip on things and our fears and our, our, our knowledge that he knows us and we're afraid of him. 
But what you must do is just come to him as you are and say, Lord, I need you to save me. Would you be my Lord? It is just a simple childlike faith that saves. You don't got to get the words right. As we sing, if you're struggling with this, I just pray that your heart will go out to God in such a way that you will turn to Christ and rest in what he has done. Lord, I pray that you would finish the work. Lord, we plant, we water, you give the increase. I pray that you would do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Andy, would you close us with a song and with prayer?